Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. When Jesus showed up on the planet, Jesus launched something absolutely brand new. And it had to do with our relationship with God. The Bible word for this is like a covenant. There was a new covenant given by Jesus, a new way to be in relationship with God. And then he, he launched this brand new movement. And, and we call it the church back then. They didn't know what to call it. Some of them called it the way. They called it all kinds of things. We call it the church. But just a brand new way for people to live together in relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. And then also flowing out of that relationship, a brand new way for us to live in relationship with one another. And, and Jesus started some new things when he was here, and, and he completed and kind of laid aside some old things, and he said a lot of amazing things. He did a bunch of miraculous, incredible things. And then, seemingly at the height of his public popularity, Jesus was executed. And the thing about him being executed is, once he was executed, his movement, it, it died like all of the momentum he had kind of created and built up. And when Jesus died, his movement died with him because their faith was not in the cool things that he taught. And he, he taught some amazing things. Their trust in him, their faith, their confidence wasn't in the miracles that he had performed. They had even seen those happen from other people. What made Jesus special and what made them believe and follow him was because of who he said he was. And once he died, it undermined everything that he had said about himself. He said that he was the son of God. Well, surely the son of God can't die. He said he was the way and the truth and the life. And then the life died? Like that doesn't even make sense. And so when Jesus died, all of his followers, they, they just abandoned ship. When, when he was crucified, everybody went home and they hid from the soldiers that had put Jesus to death. Because if they came for Jesus, they might come for them next. And his death undermined everything he said. But then after what we call Easter morning, after Resurrection Sunday, amazingly enough, his followers re-followed Everybody that had unplugged, plugged back in, and they went out into their streets, and they went out into their world, and they said, and they claimed that they had seen a resurrected Jesus. They claimed that he was alive again, and far from undermining everything that he had said, it punctuated everything that he had said about himself, because Jesus was alive again. And when they, when they saw him, when they found him alive again, it wasn't like he was like bandaged up, you know, and had a dressing that needed to be changed and hanging on an IV pole, kind of limping around. He was like alive in a brand new way, in a whole new way. He was there in, 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 in miraculously with life and vitality just flowing out of him. And, and then he spent the next 40 days after his resurrection with them, assuring them and, and reassuring them and reminding them of everything he said, and then also scaring them. He scared them a lot, and I think he did it on purpose because he could like somehow almost like teleport after his resurrection. And there's one instance in particular when they're all in like this closed room and they're all hiding from the authorities and the doors are locked. And then suddenly into that closed meeting, like, poof, there's Jesus. And the first thing he has to say to them is, peace unto you. You know why he had to say peace be unto you? Because they're scared. What would you think if you're in a closed room with locked doors and somebody shows up right there in the middle? I think peace be unto you was the first century Greek translation of the word boo. Like I just said, uh, I think that's what Jesus probably did. And so he stayed with them for 40 days explaining and reminding and assuring them. And then he gathers them in what we in the church world called the Great Commission. 
And he tells them, listen, based on what you've heard, based on what you've seen, based on what you've witnessed, go out into all the world. Because all authority and all power has been given to me, go out into all the world and make disciples, make followers of me out of everybody. Not just Jewish people, because they were initially just Jewish people, but everybody. And then baptize them. And then he told them, teach them to observe, and we might substitute the word obey there, teach them to observe or obey everything I commanded you. And then Jesus left. And he sent the Holy Spirit to fill the hearts of believers. And and the Holy Spirit is here to guide us into all truth and to bring back everything to their minds and to our minds that Jesus has said and taught and commanded. And for the most part, with a little bit of pushing, they started doing what Jesus told them to do. And the church was the church. There they were. First, the first century world, and no Jesus physically present, but the Holy Spirit there. They were the church. There were no buildings. There were no budgets. I'm telling you, that must have been so nice. No buildings, no budgets, no organization. They didn't even have a Bible, which was a big deal, especially when they left the Jewish world and started going out into what we call the Gentile world, all the non-Jewish people like us, especially when they went out into the Gentile world. They didn't even have what we call the Old Testament. That's like the, the Bible for Jewish people, but they didn't even have that. And when they went to the Jewish or the Gentile people, the Gentile people were like, you know, Moses who? Like Abraham what? Like we don't even know what you're talking about. And they went to them and, and, and the earliest writings of the church didn't come around till about 20, 30 years after the resurrection by a guy named Paul, and it was still another 20, 30 years, maybe 10 to 30 years after that before it started circling, but, uh, circulating. But here they were with this incredibly hard and difficult mission to accomplish. They were the church. They were supposed to make disciples, and with only an assorted memories of his, you know, a few assorted memories from his followers, with only a, a few eyewitnesses and people that had, had been changed and touched and healed and transformed by Jesus, uh, and then only those confusing parables. Anybody ever tried to read the parables of Jesus? Yeah, you're confused as to what I'm talking about. There you go. They were that confusing even if you know what I'm talking about. And then his commands. They had these commands. And the commands didn't even make sense until after the resurrection. That's all they had to go on. That's all they had in their possession to be the church. But against all odds, the Jesus movement took off. And it changed the world forever because people full of the Holy Spirit trusted a risen Jesus enough to actually begin living out in their world what Jesus had commanded them to live out. And because of their trust and their obedience, we're here. We wouldn't even be here if they had not remembered and lived out what Jesus had commanded them to do. Now, we haven't touched on this very much in this series, but I wanted to take some time at the beginning of this message to kind of talk about the, the one command, I call it, or the main command that Jesus gave. And, and this command that Jesus gave, this one command, it, it supports and it kind of creates the space for all of the other commands that we hear from Jesus. And he says it a few different times in a few different ways, uh, especially on what we call the night of the Last Supper with his disciples the night before he was arrested. But he said this. I'm going to pull out the version from John chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus turns to them and he says, Guys, listen, my command is this. You need to love each other as I have loved you. This is like the one command. The one thing that Jesus left for us to put into, into play and into practice. And, and we think, well, then what about all of the other ones? And what do we do with all of the other ones? And how can there even be a bunch of other ones if this is supposed to be Jesus' one new command? And the thing is, this one command that he gave on that last night at the Last Supper, it kind of gives the space and, and it's the foundation for all of the other things that Jesus told us to do. In other words, if you get this one right, if you just worry about this one, 
all of the other ones naturally become part of your life and your existence. So just focus on this one and everything else works. It's like if I told you, eat healthy. If I tell you, eat healthy, I shouldn't need a second commandment that comes and says, don't eat deep fried Twinkies. I shouldn't need to, I shouldn't need to tell you that even if you, but man, I imagine they taste really wonderful. I hope to have one someday. But this one command, like this is why we don't lie. This is why we don't steal. This is why we don't kill people. Because you can't kill somebody and then love them as Jesus has loved you. And, and, and from what he did after that, he walked out of that room from giving that one command. And soon after that, he would walk up a hill to a cross and be nailed there and provide his perfect life as a covering for our imperfect lives. Because he loved us that much, now we have the picture. That is how much we are to love each other. And that's way easier to remember, just one thing, right? It's not even like the 10. It's just the one. It's way easier to remember, but it is far, far more demanding on our lives. And he said that this would be the badge for all of his followers. He gave no other external signs. There were no other proofs that he wanted you to have that you were indeed one of his disciples other than this thing right here. This is the way that all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. And so the early church went out into their world and, and they lived out this one command and they put into practice all of the others that kind of like draw from and branch off from this one command and their trust in what he promised and what they saw after the resurrection gave them the confidence to put these commands and these ideas from Jesus into, into practice and it changed the world. But these commands were hard. All of the other things that Jesus brought to their mind and they wrote down for us to put into practice, they're hard things and they really don't even make sense sometimes. Like the command to do not fear, right? Anybody ever had you know, somebody tell you just don't be afraid? It's so nice, isn't it? Like once somebody tells you don't be afraid, you're just like not afraid anymore. It's great, right? How that works. Somebody, anybody ever had someone tell you don't worry about it? It's so nice. Somebody tells me don't worry about it and just like instantly, I just, I don't worry anymore. Yeah, we'll just let that one hang right there. How about this one? Do not sin. Somebody pointed their finger at you one day and said, do not sin. And after that, like, you've been perfect ever since. It's great. You walked on water this morning. You had a hard time getting in the bathtub because you keep walking on water by accident. All because somebody told you, do not sin. Like, it's just perfect. We're so glad. And then there's this one command today that we're going to look at that, actually, this is a lot of people's favorite one. Do not judge. Do not judge. Turn to somebody and like get a, get a preacher finger out. You guys ready? Like turn to somebody close to you. Come on, come on. And tell them, do not judge, Judy. Come on, tell them, tell them. You guys got to say it with preacher voice. Come on, this is an all play. This is, come on, everybody, here we go. Get your preacher finger out. Get ready. Turn to somebody. Look them in the eyes. Kind of, you know, wrinkle your, your brow a little bit. Ready? No, don't look at me. Look at them. Look at them. Tell them, do not judge, Judy. You got to put Judy on there. It just kind of works better. Okay, that, there's another dad joke. See, I just, I knew I shouldn't have done them this morning. It doesn't work. This one's a favorite of a lot of people, isn't it? Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, woohoo. We got a woohoo on Sunday morning. <laughs> we need more of those during my preaching. It just, this one's a favorite of a lot of people. The thing about this, it's a favorite of a lot of non-Christian people, isn't it? Don't judge me, bruh. My daughter started, 
My daughter started saying bruh to me, and I just don't know what to do with that. But maybe you've said this before, like, do not judge. Don't judge me. Maybe you've had someone to say it to you in, in, in one form or another. Maybe if you're here this morning and you're not necessarily like a Christian, maybe you're still trying to figure it out. You're like, yes. Like, I can't believe the Christians are actually talking about this. Yes, this is the greatest thing that I think is in their Bible, and it's like the kryptonite to their preaching. I mean, because judgmental people, that's why you don't go to church. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Yeah. These may be the only words of Jesus that you know, and you didn't even know they were Jesus' words. You just thought they're in that book somewhere, right? Look, that's okay. I get it. I get why we all want to say this. But here's the thing about this word judge. Like, it has a lot of different meanings, doesn't it? Like, everybody kind of means somehow. So I want to give you kind of what I'm talking about this morning. Do not judge. Do not size me up and write me off, right? Do not size me up and write me off. Thou shall not size me up and write me off. Don't look at what I'm wearing. Don't look at who I'm with. Don't tell me what I did last summer. Don't talk about what's on my body. Don't talk about what's not on my body, who I've been with, who I plan on being with. Don't size me up and don't write me off. Hmm. Do not judge. Now, here's the thing about religious people. Notice I didn't just say Christian people, but religious people, all religions. It's all religious people. Why are religious people, why do we have a reputation for being judgmental? Like, why do we kind of default to that? Anybody know, like, don't point fingers. Anybody know somebody is kind of judgmental? Can I get an amen from, <laughs> don't poke your neighbor, right? Like, why is it our default? Why do we have to fight this pull towards being judgmental? I've been judgmental sometimes. I think I still am judgmental sometimes, especially when they're counting out the fries they put in my combo. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Just, I am judgmental. We are judgmental. We see things. And anybody else want to admit this morning, raise hand. I am judgmental sometimes. <laughs> I judge that all the rest of you are liars. You just <laughs> left your hands down. Like, we're so judgmental. Why are we so judgmental? And I think there's a couple of reasons. You could probably have like a whole another thing on this, but I just want to bring a couple of, of reasons to your mind this morning. First of all, I think we're judgmental because we're jealous, right? Like those sinners, man, they look like they're having a good old time, don't they? They just like, they look like they're having more fun than you. I mean, they are enjoying their sin. And we, we're holy. Like, you know. I mean, like we're, anybody, anybody ever heard somebody preach, and don't raise your hand on this, anybody ever heard somebody preach before, God doesn't want you to be happy, God wants you to be holy. Like, wait a minute, like something's wrong with that. Like, you're putting out into the air that you can't be holy and be happy? Like, what in the world is that? Like, who, who is your God? Like, I mean, is that the same Jesus that showed up and turned water into wine? Oh, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was unfermented, you know, just don't go there, Jared, don't go there. I can, yeah, come next communion, it's going to be a good old time. Just, 
Uh, somebody don't send Bishop this message, but I can remember when I was um, with my friend Jeremy Miller. I was like six or seven years old, you know, grew up in church, grew up under the pews, all this kind of stuff. We had songbooks. Anybody remember songbooks in church? You ain't lived till you had a songbook in church. You go and make funny things out of all the author's initials. Like those, anybody remember that? Page 141 of Singing to the Lord. No, 265. There was some good ones on there. I remember that. But there was a song we used to sing in church called Love Lifted Me. Anybody remember that? Love lifted me, right? Love lifted. That's an old song. So we're singing that song in, in verse one. And Jeremy Miller and I, we, we planned this one. We were ready. We're sitting over there together. And they started off with verse one. I was sinking deep in sin. And right then, Jeremy Miller and I went, Yahoo! It just sounded so fun. Like <laughs> sinking deep in sin. That sounds amazing because. Being holy just doesn't seem very happy. But those sinners, they look like they're getting away with something. And if I can't, they shouldn't be able to either. And if it's against my religion, it should be against their non-religion. You know, just like they're getting away with it. And the more they, you know, they sin, the better off they seem. I, I think David wrote something about this in a psalm somewhere, didn't he, right? Like when I saw all the good stuff going on across the street. But some Christians were just so judgmental. And I think it's because we're jealous. You guys ever meet a Christian that seems very happy that there's a hell? Like some Christians just seem way too happy that there's a hell. Like, I mean, because they know, well, I'm not going there, but I know some people that they, they deserve to, right? There was like this big controversy about 10 years ago, and I've got to hurry up and get back to my thing. There's this Christian pastor and author named Rob Bell, and he wrote this book called, I don't remember what it is because I don't want you to read it. I think it was like actually a terrible book, but he wrote this statement in there, and he was trying to argue that, you know, that actually there is no hell. He's there. There is no, and boy, like it took the Christian world because he was really popular. Like all of a sudden there was these debates and people calling him a heretic and all of this stuff and discussion and condemnation and radio shows and all this stuff. And then there's a, this other pastor I follow. I love the way this guy thinks. He's so brilliant. And he was asked for a response because he's kind of a, you know, a well-known pastor as well. And he, he said, I'd been asked so many times, like, what do you think about Rob Bell? Like saying that there's, there's no hell. And, and so he, he developed this response. He came up with this response that he started you know, kind of responding to people with. And so he went on some interview and they said, well, what do you think about Rob Bell's book and his claim that there is no hell? And this pastor looked at the interview and he said, well, I sure hope he's right. Don't you? That's a great response, isn't it? Like he didn't give anything away in his doctrine or his beliefs, but it's just like, you know, think about it. Like, I sure hope he's right. Don't you? Like, if we're not, you know, sad and brokenhearted that some people never will come to the foot of the cross and find freedom and restoration and rescue and healing from all, like, shouldn't we absolutely be crying and brokenhearted over this? Because Jesus certainly was. And maybe if our attitude is that we're glad there's a hell for sinners, maybe we need to step back and realize that we don't see people like Jesus sees people. And another reason that religious people tend to be so judgmental is because, honestly, we're a little bit self-righteous, right? And self-righteousness, that's that sin that seems to set Jesus off the most. I mean, he goes after that time and time again. It's the reason that he was so at odds with the religious leaders of his day. It was the core problem solved by that wonderful trilogy of stories in, in Luke chapter 15, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And self-righteousness reveals some things about us. And, and, you know, I know I'm not talking to anybody here, but I'm going to give you guys something when you go and talk to those other self-righteous people that you know. But self-righteousness, it dumbs down God's holiness 
while at the same time it elevates our own. It dumbs down God's purity and his perfection to something that we think we can actually attain on our own. Even though we have the whole New Testament telling us we can't, and even though we have yesterday telling us we can't, we dumb down God's holiness and we elevate our own and we imagine that somehow we can be the perfect individual that God's holiness absolutely demands that we be. We think, we, we think like that, right? It's what we do. And we think, well, it's not that hard. Just follow a few of these rules that I found. You know, here, here's, here's some of the rules that I follow. You follow my rules and presto, you're holy. I mean, look at me. I can do it with one hand tied behind my back. Oh, wait, I did something with the other hand. Now maybe you better tie both hands behind my back. And then my feet keep walking over there. Why don't you, you know, tie my feet together too? And then I just looked again. Somebody put a blindfold over me. Hello, somebody. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody want to be honest in church this morning, right? Somebody plugged my ears. Somebody ripped my tongue out of my mouth, right? And all of these things. And pretty soon we're in that condition that Jesus kind of talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Like if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut your hand off. And, and you realize that to quote unquote attain perfection, man, we'd be bloody dismembered stumps. Like we wouldn't even have any like eyes and ears, nothing. We'd just be like rolling around everywhere trying to, and then we'd still, we would still sin because in our minds we'd probably be complaining about it, right? We would. And you realize as you read this, and so, so often us literal people, really literal people, we think, well, Jesus has given a prescription for holiness right there. Like if I, if I keep sinning, I'm going to start chopping things off. Like, you know, no, that's not. He's using satire. He's pointing out that we will never be holy enough on our own. He came and basically said, you're doomed. He told all the men in the crowd, he said, how many, of your, how many of you men have ever committed adultery? And everybody's like, you know, keeping their hands down. And he said, how many of you ever looked at a woman to lust after? And then they still kept their hands down, but they knew it should have been up. And he said, well, if you've even looked at a woman to lust after, you are an adulterer. And everybody's looking at each other like, man, who can, who can pass this test? And basically what Jesus is saying time and time and time again is, you need to be perfect if God's going to accept you. And you're not perfect. You're doomed but I'm here for the doomed people. I'm here for the imperfect people. You know, Paul, Paul said it. He said, this, this is an acceptable saying, worthy of all acceptation by everybody, that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He came to save sinners. If you ain't a sinner, you don't need him. So good luck working that out on your own, you judgmental, self-righteous person. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> See, here's the thing about self-righteousness. It reveals a lack of self-awareness. And because we're not as aware of our own faults, we tame down God's holiness and we blind ourselves to our true condition. And then we just turn around and start judging everybody else who is struggling with the same things or maybe just different things than we are. And then Jesus tells us, do not judge. But how do we not judge? Because it's just like something that we do, right? I mean, we see things and we make a judgment. And I think that we need to start by going to Jesus' words. And because do not judge is the beginning of what Jesus says, but it's not actually everything that Jesus said about judging. And when you look where he said it, he said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's his longest, most famous sermon. He probably preached it a bunch of different times. Matthew, um, where we're going today, was there to hear him. He probably could quote or recite that sermon by the time he wrote Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, we have the words of Jesus. Here it is right here. Do not judge. There it is. 
And in your Bible, it's written in red, so you know it's important. Like, it's there. It's, do not judge. Do not criticize me. Do not compare me. Do not confront me about anything that I do. I say, stay out of my business. Mind your own business. Do not judge, period. Now, that's usually what people think when they read and or they hear, do not judge. But actually, there's not a period at the end of it. There's actually a comma, because Jesus wasn't actually done talking and he, it actually gets better. If you don't like Christians and judgmental Christians, you'll like this. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. That's even better. You're glad you came to church today, aren't you? Don't judge me or it's going to come right back on you. You didn't even know that part, right? Come on, somebody turn to somebody close to you and tell them, in your face. No, don't say That's bad. Y'all are way too quick to do that. You're horrible. Like, that's, that's bad. But he's not even done. He goes on and he says in verse 2, For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's harsh. There's a good reason to not judge people, isn't there? There's a strong warning in there, isn't there, for us to not judge other people. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, judge unto others as you would have others judge unto you, right? However you judge other people, you will be judged the same way. Whatever standard, whatever measure you use to size people up before you write them off, it's going to be used before somebody sizes you up and writes you off. So how, how then do we want to be judged? That's kind of a good question, right? Like if however I judge others is the way that I'm going to be judged, how do I want to be judged? And here's the thing. I'll go ahead and I'll answer first. I want to be judged not. I don't want you to judge me. If you look for faults, you're going to find them. You look for flaws in me, you're absolutely going to find them. But I guess if I, if I had to give an answer, if you're absolutely going to judge me, then guess what? I want to be judged with mercy. I want to be judged in grace. I want you to have a lot of forgiveness when you come and you talk to me. I want you to have patience, like the patience of a saint, who would have thought? Like saints are supposed to have patience. Like I said, I want you to have patience with me. I want you to have kindness. I want you to judge me while handing me a cup of coffee and pat me on the back. Hello, somebody. When you judge me, take into account the load I'm carrying. When you judge me, take into account my family of origin, or maybe take into account that I didn't have a family of origin. Give space for some seasons of life where maybe I didn't have a mentor. Give space for some seasons in life when I got trapped by something and I was trying to get my way out, but it had sunk its claws into me. Give space for that time that I was abused or when something had sunk in so low I couldn't seem to get it out. Before you say a word, consider where I was because of how I was Put on this planet. Before you say anything judgmental to me, think of what might have been broken in me. Think of what might have been missing in me. See me not as you want to see me from your perfection, but see me at my low. And then if you're going to judge me, have mercy and have compassion and do it without talking about me and gossiping about me. Don't just coldly size me up and then write me off. Yeah, that's all right. Clap. It's Jesus' words. They're not mine. Take into account my whole life story if you're going to judge me. Because however you judge me, it's exactly the way that you are going to be judged. And then Jesus asked another great question. Why? Why? 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, to the two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? And this is actually the part where we Christians start to engage again. We like this part because I knew it. I knew there was something there. I knew there was a speck in that eye. I knew I saw something. I knew that I was right. Jesus said it's okay to see it, and I see it. But why? Why do we do this? Why are we so intent on on seeing the tiny things in their life and ignoring the huge things in our life? Like Jesus wants to know. Why? Why do you do this? And here's the thing. First of all, it's more fun to look in somebody else's eye, isn't it? It's more fun to find fault in someone else's eye, right? It actually helps me because if I see something wrong with you, I feel better about myself. Can I get a good amen from somebody? Your imperfection helps me feel better about me. And secondly, I didn't realize I had a plank in my own eye, Jesus, until you said something. I thought it was just part of me. I thought it's who I was. I didn't see the big two-by-four sticking out of my eye, and it's hard to see when it's just part of who I am. But Jesus isn't even done with the tough talk. In verse 4, he says, how can you? Somebody say, how could you? You ever said that to somebody? How could you? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? How can you? If you want to make the world better, if you're really here to love and, and, and live and let live and, and just make the world a better place, why wouldn't you? Why can't you? Why can't we seem to start with ourselves? Why do we feel the need to focus on someone else? And then he punctuates it. I mean, he kind of punch, he, he punches us Christians like right in the breadbasket with his next two words. You hypocrite. You, it's just a nasty word, isn't it? Hypocrite. And if you want to know what a hypocrite is, look at Jesus' definition. Look how he's using it. A hypocrite is someone who's more concerned about what's wrong with someone else than they are with what's wrong with them. Somebody more determined to fix somebody else than they are to fix themselves. Someone who sees what's wrong with everyone else and refuses to confront what's wrong with themselves. Now, it's been pretty good news for those of us that don't want to be judged so far. But Jesus still isn't done. There's still no period in what he is saying. He says, you hypocrite, and then notice what's after the word hypocrite. A comma. There's more that Jesus has to say. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. When you see how messed up someone else is, first let it be a reminder to check yourself before you... Uh, Yeah, y'all know that one. Uh, Somebody say, uh. (laughs) I'm sorry, I feel stupid today. First, let it be a reminder of all of the ways that we are messed up in ourselves and by ourselves. They have sought, you realize that the sawdust comes from the lumber, right? So they have a tiny bit of something and you got a two by four of the exact same thing sticking out of your eye. Now think, we're still on the first part, right? Like once you're reminded of your two-by-four issue, once you notice your two-by-four issue, maybe once you ask someone, hey, is there anything weird about my face? You know, like, and you got this board sticking out. Once, you know, you do that. First, you go remove it from your own eye. Don't talk to the other person that you saw the sawdust in their eye. Don't approach them. If you get too close, you're going to hit them with a two-by-four. Step back. Give some space. Give some room. Go and take care of the plank in your own eye first. Go get the counsel you need. Hello. Go find the forgiveness that you need. Hello. 
You in your own self. Go find someone who can speak into you words of affirmation for yourself. Go find out what's broken in yourself. Oh, come on. I wish that somebody would admit that there were broken people still, hurt people still, people like you and me with holes in our hearts still. First, go take care of that. First, go take steps to stop that habit, curb that addiction, find ways of getting what you need. You hypocrite first. Take the plank out of your own eye. So there's the good news for people that don't like hypocrites. But if there's first, if there's a first, that means there's also a second. Jesus isn't done. And here's where maybe some of the bad news starts for us that don't want to be judged. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will, be, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. But wait, 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 Jesus. I thought that judge not meant that everybody was supposed to just mind their own business. See, I thought judge not meant leave me alone. Quit calling me. Quit trying to talk to me. Just back off. Don't say anything to me. Hasta la pasta. I don't need you in my life. Like Just be quiet and walk away. But this is where Christianity is so different. This is where Christianity is so amazing. This is the heart of what the Jesus movement is all about. Here's where the one command of Jesus brings its power and brings its freedom to bear on our relationships with God and each other because following Jesus is never just about you. It's never just about you. It's never only about the one. It's about what God wants to do through the one for everybody else. And being a follower of Jesus, being part of the Jesus movement means that we take what has been given to us, all of the freedom and the power and the healing and the grace and the mercy that has been so liberally and generously freely poured into us, and then we take what we have been given and we turn around and we leverage what we did not find on our own, what we did not create on our own, but what was given to us by heaven, we take and then use for the benefit of somebody else. This is what Jesus, following Jesus is all about. Following Jesus is about using what he has done for you for the sake of someone else. It's about giving what has been given to you to make up the poverty in someone else. It's about letting grace flow freely into your life so that grace can then continue to flow freely out of your life. Grace was never intended to become a stagnant pond in our hearts. Jesus promised rivers of living water, rivers of living water. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Where did it come from? Not from me. It came from him. But now that it has come to me, Jesus, just let me be a tributary. Jesus, just let me be a stream of grace and mercy. Let my life never stop somebody else from finding your healing and your mercy. But Jesus, let your your rivers flow through me. See, this is what it means to have rivers of living water flowing through us. It's not hyperbole. It's not just poetic language. It's a call. It's a mission statement that Jesus wants to use us to freely give what he has freely given to us. We talked about this. Jesus said this is the badge. This is the identifier to tell the rest of the world that you are my follower. To love them as I have loved you. And then he climbed up a hill that he had no business being on. And he gave his life for people who had no business receiving such beauty and grace and forgiveness. 
See, if I see something in you that reminds me that I need to handle something in me, and then I only go and handle my own business but never come back to help you handle yours, then it it only did something for me, but it does nothing for you. So do not judge. is not about leaving other people alone and hurting. Do not judge. is not about minding your own business. It's certainly not some kind of weird self-help formula where you, you see how messed up somebody else is, and so it just makes you go work on your own stuff so you can feel, feel better about yourself. This is about us realizing and seeing reminders in other people of our own brokenness. It's about us seeing the hurt in other people and being reminded of our own hurts and then going to Jesus so that we can become stronger and better and more self-aware and more humble and more compassionate and more experienced and more full of his grace and his spirit so that, so that we are better equipped to turn around and face our world and be the light that Jesus has called us to be. This is the church. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to handle our own business with his grace so that we can turn around and use his grace and strength to help other people handle theirs. And Jesus is commanding us to address our issues, not for our sake, but for the sake of people around us. There's supposed to be purpose in your pain. There's supposed to be redemption in your story. There's supposed to be future, even though our lives are filled with failures, so that we can turn and be better equipped to help a wounded and blinded world that so needs us to be like Jesus for him. So judging other people, seeing other things in other people, it's not judgmental, it's obedience if we do what Jesus told us to do with it. And it takes us back to that last supper night and the last command, I would argue the one command that informs and holds together all of the other commands where Jesus in so many words told him, guys, if you forget everything else, Guys, if you can't remember what what chapter and book and verse to find such and such or to do such and such, if you're a little confused because at least the people in the old part of the Bible got a list of 10 and we don't really have any kind of formula, if you don't know what to do, just remember, just remember this one thing, to love one another as I have loved you. Mm. Hasn't he loved you so well? Hasn't he loved you so fully, so wonderfully, so completely? So do not judge does not mean do not care. Do not judge does not mean do not help. Do not react. Do not reach out. Because every bit as love might forbid me to to stop sizing you up and writing you off, love also forbids me from sizing you up and walking away from your hurt and from your need. This is what love does. It's what the love of Jesus calls us to do for others because it has been done so wonderfully for us. So don't judge me. Don't size me up and write me off, but don't walk away when I need your help. See yourself clearly. First, you you go and handle your own issues first and get yourself to a place and a position where you can turn in grace and turn in compassion and turn in mercy and, and kindness just as the God of all grace has turned to you. And turn once you are there in that place of healing, once you are there in that place of your own restoration, turn with that same self giving love and reach out just as you have been reached for. Can I hear an amen from somebody? And some of us in this room, we've, we've sized people up and we've written them off. Some of us in this room that maybe we've lived for God for a long time, we've been Christians for a long time, we've forgotten just how imperfect we really are. We've forgotten just how absolutely perfect He is. 
We've forgotten how absolutely lost we can be when we get just too comfortable with our own status and too comfortable, you know, in our, in our relationship with God, just it loses some of its vitality and the Holy Spirit and we lose that, that spirit of humility that drives us to altars of repentance and we, we lose that awareness that just on our own, we're just not very good at life. Without Jesus, we're just not great. We need Him more than we've ever need him, needed Him before, but we, we, we kind of trick ourselves. We, we fool ourselves into thinking that we don't need Him as much. And for all of us, if that's you and that's been me at different times in my Christian experience, listen, we need to repent today. We need to go to God today and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I can't see myself as I really am. I'm sorry that I've been seeing myself as having everything together and not really needing your grace and your mercy. I mean, grace and mercy, that's for the new people. It's for the messed up people, the ones that we have judged, sized up. And if it wasn't for them walking into a church, maybe we would even write them off if we saw them on the street. But we need to ask God to show us the things, show us the things in our lives, show us the things sticking out so obvious to everybody else that we need to handle, that we need to bring to Him so that He can handle for us. And we self-righteous people, we're usually the the least self-aware. And we water down the holiness of God. And we elevate our own goodness and our own holiness and we make God tame. And we think that we're okay on our own. And if we're not brokenhearted when we see the sin and the brokenness and the failures in others, there's a really good chance we're not brokenhearted over the sin that we still have in ourselves. The sin living within ourselves. We, we, and I'm including myself in that self-righteous category, we need to repent. Repent before a holy but a gracious gracious God. Now, some of us, we see the brokenness and the sin in others, and we see things in them that, you know, we don't want to allow in ourselves, and we see addictions, and we see failures, and in one sense, we respond rightly because we say, and we pray, and we, you know, and with, not with a bad attitude, with a good attitude, we say, God, thank you for rescuing me from that. We, we do rightly, and we say, God, I remember where I was when you found me, and God, I, I don't ever want to go back there, and if it wasn't for you, that's, that's where I'd be. I don't judge them, God. But then, then we turn our backs and we walk away. Then we say, well, it's none of my business. And God is like pulling his white hair out because he saved you to use you to save someone else. He forgave you to let someone else know that that same forgiveness is on offer to somebody else. He poured you just grace and mercies and beauty and love so just to overflowing in your life. And we keep trying to scoop up the extra and put it back in and keep everything for ourselves. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what it's for. I have given you rivers of living water so that you would turn and direct that source of my grace and my mercy into the heart and the life and the soul of somebody else. And if your general attitude when you see someone's life in ruin is to think, well, it's none of my business. Well, then guess what? Today's the day for you to change. Today's the day also, Christian and Jesus follower, person redeemed by grace and mercy of love. It's time for you to repent as well. Time for you to repent for not being the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus. Today, you need to decide that I'm no longer going to walk away. But today, I turn and I walk toward the broken. Today, I turn and I walk toward the hurting. I walk toward the mess. I don't run away from it. I don't plug my ears. I don't close my eyes. But God has brought them into my life so that I can be a messenger of his mercy and his kindness and his goodness. Mm. 
Today's your day to tell, them, tell God, you've put them in my life for a reason, so use me. Let your Holy Spirit flow through me. Let, anybody ever just not know what to say? When you're, you know, I mean, most of the time we, we walk away from somebody that's hurting because we just don't know what to say, right? I'll give you guys a, you know, kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. I'm a pastor. 90% of the time, I have no idea what to tell you guys. Pastor, this is happening. This is happening. God's great. God is able. And it's all true. But none of us are equipped to handle and navigate tragedy and pain and heartache and heartbreak. None of us are. It's not supposed to exist in God's good world. So we're not equipped to handle it, but just to be present, just to be in someone's life and say, I may not know the words to say to you right now, but I want to hold your hand through this. I want to put my arm around your shoulder through this. I'm going to help you get through this. I'm going to be here for you to be what Jesus has been so beautifully to each and every one of us. And then there are some people here, you're here this morning, and you, you've hated what someone has said about your life. You have resented for so long now what people have spoken about your life choices and your hangups and your addictions. And the wreckage was clear. I'm not talking, you know, about little things. I'm talking like the wreckage is clear. Like you're living with damage. You're living in pain and, and devastation. And someone has come to you in a completely humble way. And they didn't even come to you with words about your failure. They came to you with words about their own failure. And they said that they loved you and they cared for you. You pushed them away. And you pushed them away. You thought, or maybe you even said, don't judge me. Don't tell me that I need to change. Don't tell me that's broken. Don't tell me that I can't live with this kind of hell in my life. But you're living in the hell of your wrong decision. And every morning you wake up and you're haunted with your devastation and pain. And you won't take the hand of someone who has come to where you are to lead you by God's grace to someone so much better. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.